Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis 2, 25 through 3, 13. Hear the word of the Lord. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. If I have not met you, my name is Gabe Coyle. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to be together at Christ Community's downtown campus. And now that we know each other, I want to ask you, I want to ask you a favor, okay? Maybe, maybe it's not a small one, but maybe a big one. I was just curious if you would let me, can, can I run your life? I, you know me now, right? You know, so I'm curious, and, and I know like you're giving a little bit of pushback, like this is ridiculous. There's a, I want you to just take a deep breath, and I want you to genuinely hear this. Can I run your life? Just give me like a moment, just like a sliver of time where I can just I can run everything, you know, when you wake up, when you go to bed, if you go to work, when you go to work, how you're going to work, who you're going to love, how those relationships, just everything, you know, Um, because frankly, when I'm looking around, I think that I could do a little bit better job with your life than you're doing. Now, you may disagree, but I'm just asking just for a moment if you could let me, right, good old Gabe, run your life. Still no? I mean, do I get any takers? Now, You may be thinking, but Gabe, you don't know me the way I know me. Or, or, you know, are you really compassionate enough? Are you loving enough? Are you wise enough? Those are fair pushbacks. I can give you those. Um, even Even still, in light of all of that, I want you to take one step back, and I just want you to ask this question broadly. If not me, is there any human being, any human being in your life that you would give that kind of control to, to run your entire life. No? Me neither. 
So I, I, I don't fault you for that. And yet what's so fascinating to me when I think about, okay, how crazy it is for me to ask if I can run your life or how crazy it is to ask any human being to run your life, it's astounding that we feel perfectly comfortable giving that level of control to ourselves. Isn't it? I mean, let's be honest. No one in this room thinks that they can run their life or that anyone can run their lives better than themselves, right? Even if that anyone includes God. I mean, no one knows me like me. No one wants the best for me like me. And maybe you wouldn't ask it this way, but if you were to ask it this way, there's a, there's a way you could say, if, if I want, if there's anybody who I wish could be God of my life, it's probably me. Me, myself, and I, this unholy trinity that always wants to take control. We want to be so much more than we are. We want to be able to call the shots in our life and to impact the trajectory of our lives because we think that we are rightfully suited to do so. And at the very least, you may not say you want to be the God of your life, but I can almost imagine everyone in here wants to feel a little more God-ish, you know, if you want to put it that way, if you, if you can get there with me. So imagine, for, for example, for some of us, that might mean you wish you could be everywhere like God, right? You've got a bad case of FOMO, and uh, you also are worried about letting other people down if you're not there with them in every single moment. And so your life, if you look at your calendar, you find yourself running yourself ragged to be everywhere, doing everything for everyone. And you feel exhausted. And you just wish, oh, I wish I could be everywhere like God. Maybe some of us in here, part of that desire to be more Godish is that you feel like you wish you could control everything and everyone. Um, maybe in the back of your mind, you think if people would just listen to me, we wouldn't be in this mess. Whatever context that might be in which you find yourself. And so you manipulate, you browbeat. Um, and maybe even blow off the handle a few times, trying to get the people around you to make your will be done wherever you are. We all want to be a little more God-ish if we're not willing to say that we would like to be the God of our lives. And what's so fascinating is that even as I think about my own life, I want to be fully who I am, right? We want to be authentic. We want to be authentically ourselves, but I simultaneously want to be more than myself. I want to be something more, someone more, like a God or the God, just someone who can take charge and call the shots and really define the trajectory of my life. Even as I say this out loud, there's like a part of me that's getting like riled up, like, yes. And I get this nagging thought in the back of my mind. But there's, there's like, there's a really big problem that I've discovered that scripture points to with this line of thinking, a problem that I've discovered in my own life and a problem you've probably felt as well, and it's this. Our attempts to be more only make us less. Our attempts to try to be more than human, more than we're created to be, actually set us on the road to become less than human. And I'm not saying anything that's new. If you go to the very first temptation, that you see this discontent, this longing for more that is actually the very first temptation that human beings endured and is a part and at the very heart of every temptation since. Last week, we began the conversation around Genesis 3. And today, we're going to keep walking through the Genesis 
narrative in the book that we've been given here at the very beginning of the Bible. And today we're going to unpack this temptation even more. And we're going to see why you and I always long for more, why we long to be more. We're going to look at what happens when we actually chase after being more. And then we're going to look at the secret to finally feeling and actually being enough. Isn't that what we long for, to feel like we're enough? So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. We're going to spend most of our time in Genesis 3, but we can't skip or skip over Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. It's crucial for our context. You see, all of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we've seen God creating this beautiful, abundant, perfect world. And we come to the pinnacle verse, the climax, the final note. And how does God, how does he define and put the capstone on just how perfect his world is? We read again, Genesis 2, verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There's a lot of different ways the author could have phrased that, right, that, that would resonate with who we are. He could have said, you know, the man and his wife were both naked and happy. I think that would have been true. That could have been an important way to phrase that sentence. The author could have said, and the man and his wife were both naked and had no tan lines, you know, like that. Very true, I'm sure, unnecessary, uh, but he could have done it. And, and the man and his wife were both naked and deeply in love. I'm sure that's also true. I mean, he could have ended it that way, but he didn't. The author, when it comes to define the, the pinnacle of perfection, that God's world is unbelievable, he says they are both naked and unashamed. And right here we have a window into the human condition. The litmus test for a really good world a really good world is when human beings can be naked and be unashamed. <laughs> You're like, wait, what a second. What's going, where's this message going? Um, but seriously, you are never more vulnerable than when you're naked. And you're actually never more human than when you're naked either. Not that we're going to, like, that's not going to be the application. Let's leave naked. But, you know, like, <laughs> just, just to kind of lay the groundwork, that's not where we're going. Um, completely. Uh, no, uh, no, but in seriously, you know, when, when you're... You just hang with me. We're grown adults here, right? When you're naked, you can't hide anything, right? When, you're, when you feel an emotion, it shows up physically. When you get nervous, you begin to blush. When you get, or you get nervous, muscles begin to twitch. When you're naked, all of that is on display in the midst of a relational context. You're vulnerable. And what we see here is that Adam and Eve are utterly naked and completely without any shame. No fear of abandonment, no fear of rejection. They're not worried about what the other is going to see on them or in them. And this is so crucial for setting the groundwork or laying the groundwork as we step in now to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. We're now a serpent who is crafty beyond all the other creatures that God has made slithers onto the scene. Now, when it says here in Genesis 3.1 that the serpent is crafty, I want to be very clear, it doesn't mean that the serpent has his own Pinterest page, right? So it's not like, hey, well, aren't you crafty? No, like that, in the ancient Near Eastern world, I know that was obvious, but I want to make a point. So in the ancient Near Eastern world, the serpent across like Egypt, throughout the ancient Near Eastern world, the serpent was a symbol of death and dark wisdom, a symbol of conniving and shrewdness. And so when the ancient readers are hearing this within their cultural framework, they would have seen the serpent and said, oh, this is a really clever creature. 
but it's not there to keep the peace. Now, before we can actually dive into what's happening in Genesis 3, if you're anything like me, you have a ton of questions, like a ton of questions, trying to navigate the text as a 21st century modern person. Like for one, you're thinking, why on earth would God create this snake? Great question. Another question you might have is, well, it seems like this snake is talking to the woman. I've been to the zoo, never seen the exhibit of like the talking snake. You know, me neither. Great question. So why is the snake here? Where did this come from? Gabe, what do you know? Not a whole lot. But here's, in all seriousness, we step into one of the most astounding moments in the history of the world revealed in biblical literature. And really thoughtful people over millennia have come with really plausible answers to those good questions. And today I want to give just a couple observations before we actually go through the narrative that's before us. First, I just want to do, I do want to remind you tonight is the Q&R at 7 p.m. These are the kinds of questions that we want to unpack that we don't always have the time to unpack on a Sunday morning or we would be going through Genesis until the cows came home, right? Like it would be forever. Also, we have these videos on the Downtown Campus Facebook page that you can check out where we talk about some of the supplemental questions um, as well. So please check that out. But this morning, I want to hit just a couple, a few uh, things real quick before we continue on. One, when we see this, serpent slither on the scene, we actually get a glimpse of this cosmic spiritual battle, a rare glimpse of this cosmic spiritual battle that we do not see with our normal physical eyes, but is just as real as you and I. Just in the same way you can't see gravity, but you can see its effects. There is a cosmic spiritual battle going on that we can't always see, but we can definitely see the effects. And the great adversary to what God is doing in the world represented by the serpent here, goes by many different titles, whether it be the accuser, the deceiver, the Satan, which is both a proper name later, but also is a title. And the common thing that all of these titles have is that there is an evil being that is in opposition to God that is actually seeking to destroy all the good things that God has created, especially human beings, which are the crowning jewel of his creation. So there's this cosmic spiritual battle. Two, God is not the source of evil. Instead, the Satan, the serpent, has actually taken God's good world and he's distorted it. Evil was not always a part of God's world. And this is utterly unique in the, the uh, origin stories of the ancient Near East. If you look across the ancient Near Eastern stories that we know about, there is nothing like this. Instead, the gods were a lot more like the serpent in the stories that are concurrent in the ancient Near East to this time period. Evil was always a part of the world in all the other stories. Instead, here, what's so unique about the biblical narrative is that brokenness breaks in through an evil one upon a good world that a really good God made. And that's why I want to bring one more observation, and that's this, that Evil will not win in the end. God will win against evil. See, evil is not eternal. It had a beginning. God has no beginning. Evil will have an end. The serpent has a beginning and he will have an end. And God is the only all-powerful one and there is a day coming where he will vanquish the serpent. He will vanquish evil, death, sin, and shame forever. So with this just as like a backdrop 
this little excursus to where we are. Let's jump back in now to Genesis chapter 3 and begin to unpack what we see here. The first human couple, they're naked, they're unashamed. This really crafty serpent comes up with a very clever opening question. Look with me here at the second half of chapter 3, verse 1. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? A couple quick observations. One, the serpent starts right out the gate with a misinformation campaign. Not only is this not what God said, if you look back at chapter 2, verse 17, God actually says, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden except for one. So not only is this not what God said, but the serpent has brilliantly and indirectly focused the conversation on the one negative prohibition that God has laid on his people. Let's keep reading. Genesis chapter 3, verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Can you imagine this moment? The snake, the serpent gets closer and closer to Eve. Eve is drawn in. She feels safe. The serpent's statement was so obviously wrong. She knows an answer to this misinformation. So she begins to engage in a dialogue, drawing in closer like we do when we engage with people in conversation. She's leaning in. The serpent is leaning in. Where's Adam? <laughs> if you go to verse 6, we find out he's just standing there. I don't know what he's doing. It's like, dude, jump in on this conversation. Where are you at, bruh? Like, I mean, there's nothing going on here. And so he's just kind of like watching, passive, just seeing all this go down. Anyway, so this is what happens. Eve, interestingly enough, misquotes the one prohibition that God gave. If you go back to verse 17, God says, don't eat of the tree. He never says anything about not touching it. Um, don't, it never says anything about not touching the fruit. Now, we don't know if Adam, who received this command from God, miscommunicated it to Eve, whether Eve misremembers or she adds this. We, we don't know. So there's no room for pointing fingers. That's not the point. But the serpent, seeing an addition now, leans in and fascinatingly, as we saw here in verse 4, says, oh, that's what God said. Hmm. Well, I don't know how to tell you this, but you're actually not going to die if you eat that. Now, we know the story. Adam and Eve do die, don't they, later on. But the serpent has no use for facts. What are facts for? His goal here is to cultivate distrust, disbelief, and doubt, to bring a disconnection between God and Adam and Eve. And so he's already painted a picture of this overbearing God who said, oh, you can't have eat, it, eat of any tree of the garden. Of course, that's just like God, isn't it? Just to say that you can't eat of anything. That's so unbearable. Well, no, 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 that's not what God said. He actually said we could eat everything except for this one. Oh, he said you can't eat of that one. Well, I hate to tell you the one rule he gave you, he lied to you. So he's painted this picture of an overbearing God and that his one command is actually not life-giving. 
But for some reason, God's hiding something from you. He's keeping something back from you. He's, he's holding it back. He's actually not someone you want to trust. And you can begin. I want you to just imagine what you might be feeling if you were in Eve's sh- Well, I guess she didn't have shoes on at this point, but, you know, her skin. If, you're in, you know, if you were Eve at that moment, what would be going through your mind? The emotions you would begin to feel. It, this would be a helpful way to kind of frame it. Imagine you have a friend, a friend that's super close to you. You've implicitly trusted them with so much. And then someone comes alongside of you and then says, actually, you have no idea who that person is. Do you know what they've been doing behind your back? Do you know how they've been bad-mouthing you? Do you know how they've been doing all of this stuff to undercut you? They're just using you. Imagine what you would feel when you've been implicitly trusting this person. You never even had that thought go across your mind that, you, that your friend would be like that. Now imagine that friend is God. Imagine the questions that would begin to flood your mind. The emotions you would feel, the shame. How could you have been so foolish? You start to feel naked. Thinking things like, well, what, what did God see in me? Did he see something that he just, that, that wasn't good enough? Is God not really as good as he s- said he is? Is, is, is? is there something about me that's just inherently good that he'll never really love me enough? And, it, and slowly the story begins to play out. So much shame, so much pain. You see, God had never felt so far away. The serpent had never felt so close and Eve had never felt so alone right here in this moment. And the serpent, he doesn't just strike. He sets the stage. And he's gotten Eve to slowly only be able to talk about God rather than willing to go to God with these questions. You see that all she would have had to do her and Adam, all they had to do was to wait till God started to walk through the garden again. Then they could have raised these questions. They could have had a conversation. But the serpent has been laying the groundwork where Eve feels isolated. She won't ask Adam. She won't wait for God. She feels alone. She feels like she can't trust anyone. And she feels utterly isolated. And shame is the category, the primary weapon that the evil one uses against us again and again, and again. You see, right here we find the center of every temptation. Here's why you and I often feel like we need to chase after more. The center of every temptation is a question, and it's in some way, some way shape, or form like this. Who is enough? Is God really enough? Eve, are you really enough And who you are? Am I enough? Am I lovable? Whenever you have those moments of deep inadequacy and those questions of deep doubt over who God has made you to be, do not think that those have merely originated within you. There is something way bigger going on in the realm and the dimension of the world that you have no framework often for seeing. The evil one is seeking to undercut you with this crucial question who is enough? And the world is right on the cusp. God's good world is right on the cusp of completely unraveling. Shame is behind all of it. 
where the evil one begins to whisper our inadequacies. You'll never do a good enough job. You're messing up your kids' lives. Have you looked in the mirror lately? You'll never measure up because of who you are. You're not enough. But there is this one way where you could finally be enough. And right there, we begin to see how the evil one leverages shame to set the stage for temptation to sin. We feel utterly inadequate, and it, it almost feels desperate when the, when the option for sin comes up. We feel desperate. It's whole-bodied. We look at the solution that, conveniently enough, is right across the line that God said, don't cross. And the evil one says, you'll never be enough. You're never going to be good enough. But right over here, if you just take this, just, just tiptoe over the line, then you'll finally, what did we read or we heard read for us early? You'll be like the gods. You'll be like God. You'll, you'll know good and evil. You'll finally be like him. And that's what he's trying to keep you from. He's trying to keep you from feeling enough, from being enough, from being even greater than him, enough in yourself. And so the progression plays out. She takes and she holds. Interestingly enough, she doesn't die as she's holding the fruit. And then it's, I mean, it's just so physical, so visceral. She takes a bite. And, you know, I almost wanted to bring up some sort of fruit and actually, you know, you just imagine the sound. I don't know why I don't think it's like an orange that's really quiet. I just I imagine it like this repercussion of finally biting like reverberates throughout all of creation. And what's so fascinating is that after she bites, Adam's watching all of this and he watches her not die. <laughs> then he takes, like he totally just lets her go down the road by herself and is like, all right, she didn't die. I'll take some. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, it's like, come on, dude. You're the worst, Adam. Like, and so it was shame that set the stage. Then they actively sinned and disobeyed against God. And what did they get out of that? More shame. Look with me, Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They finally saw everything. They saw who they became when they disobeyed God. They'd made an extraordinarily selfish decision in opposition to God, and it woke them up to a nightmare. They were ashamed of who they had become. They were ashamed of what they had done. And so they, they tried to gather together leaves to cover up their inadequacies. And it was pathetic and it was painful. And it wasn't just to cover up their inadequacies from each other, but to cover them up from themselves. To even look at their own bodies, they felt shame at what they saw. And so when God finally does come to the garden, the one who has given them all this marvelous world who wanted nothing but their good, where do they go? They go hiding because not even the leaves that they've covered themselves with are enough, so they hide now behind trees and behind bushes. They're ashamed of who they are. They're ashamed of what they've done and they're afraid of what God will do when he finds out. Our attempts to be more only make us less. And the spiral of shame continues to unravel. 
when finally Adam steps out from behind the trees like a loving father. We see God ask the question here in verse 11. Adam, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? You see, God's setting the stage for vulnerability. He's setting the stage actually for confession, for a roadmap actually towards reconciliation. But shame has a stronghold. And so what does Adam do? Instead of coming clean, he blames. He pivots. Oh God, you know what happened? That woman you gave me, she's the reason I ate. And there's a twofold accusation there. One, he points the finger at the other, the other human being. And then ultimately is pointing the finger at God. You gave her to me. She's the reason all this happened. And so then God comes to Eve and he says, what have you done? And then Eve follows suit. Well, it was the serpent that deceived me. And latent within that is also a double accusation of both the serpent and then, of course, God, why did you let this serpent in your garden? It all begins to unravel. And all this taking and this eating and this shame and this hiding and this blaming, we begin to see that our attempts to be more actually ruin everything. Everything. And that's not rhetoric, okay? Our relationship with God is unraveled. Our relationship with each other is unraveled. Our relationships with ourselves is unraveled. And even the relationship with the physical world, you look around and it's now in ruins. And the detail of this ruining is, is detailed out in chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. And really what this is, is an unraveling of what God has designed human beings to do and to be. And we get a window of this if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Right after he creates the man and woman, he says, Now be fruitful and multiply and have dominion and subdue my world. Go about being both productive and procreative and making my world a better place. This is what I've designed you to do together as men and women. And what do we see unraveling here? is that now there's pain in childbearing and childrearing. There is argumentation and the defining moment of a battle between the sexes, both broadly and specifically within marriage. And even the, the working of the ground, the work works against us with thorns and thistles being the natural outcome and toil being the defining marker. Everything we were designed to do to delight in now feels exhausting. And what's so fascinating is when you're looking through your text, notice how the, how the words are arranged uniquely. Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 13 have a narrative flow. So they have a normal paragraph structure. And then when you get to verse 14, they start to have unique indentation. It's meant to highlight, the interpreters are highlighting that this is highly poetic language. The only other two places where this highly poetic language is used is in actually the creation of the image bearers, man and woman, and the creation of the woman specifically. And whenever you get to poetry, it's because words aren't enough. The brokenness of this world is so deep, so mystical, so all-encompassing that we're just grasping at it with poetry. Our attempts to be more ruin everything. So what can we do? 
if sin is our reality and shame is kind of like the background noise to our everyday life, what can we do? I mean, shame is kind of a hot topic right now, again, in our culture. Um, And that's partly due to really great thinkers like Brene Brown and her TED Talk that went extraordinarily viral. And now she has a Netflix special, which I can't wait to watch, you know. But what's, what do we do with shame? In our culture, we're given usually two primary answers or two responses to how to navigate shame. And here they are. The first is, if we can just get rid of all the rules, if we just get rid of all the rules, then the thinking goes, we won't have shame. Because if nobody's crossing any boundaries, then we won't feel bad about who we are or what we've done. And if there are no boundaries, then we'll never feel inadequate. But doesn't that sound an awful lot like what the serpent was saying? You know that one prohibition, you're not really going to die. It's not that big of a deal. You just do you, right? And then you'll become what you've always wanted. All what you really need is absolute negative freedom, this, this ability to just chase whatever your heart desires and you define what is good and evil for you. And we saw how that turned out. Now the second option we're often given in our culture in responding to how we deal with shame is to just then accept ourselves. And listen, this is a little more tricky because that's partly true. It's partly true. There's an element where we do need to accept who God has made us to be and who we are. And there's something that's really beautiful there, but it can't stop there. And the reality is, when I look in the mirror, I don't know about you, and I see me, I also see a lot of broken decisions I've made. A lot of ways that I've hurt people in very real ways, intentionally. I have desires in me that if I actually just baptized them and said they're amazing and leaned into them, I would destroy some of the people I love the most. I have conflicting desires within me. And to then just say, hey, this is all great. You just accept you. That makes me feel even worse. Like I have, that is just, that's, that leads to more pain and brokenness rather than to life. And so I find myself asking, well, what then can we do, right? And the answer is beautifully right here in chapter three. Of Genesis. What's fascinating is that the story doesn't end here. You know, the story could have ended right here. God had every right. He is the sovereign creator king who has the power to breathe life and has every right when his creatures commit treason against him to extinguish life. He has every right in his justice to do that, but that's not what he does. This is page three of our Bibles. And there are hundreds and hundreds of pages that continue to carry on where God is chasing after his people who are hiding in the bushes. And he is going to each and every one of us calling out, where are you? When we're hiding in our sin and our shame, he's chasing us down to bring us life. And listen, there are real consequences for sin. Shame is a part of our existence, this side of eternity. But when God meets us and when we let him, he wants to silence sin and shame in our lives and to breathe life into us afresh. And we see this right here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Before God expels Adam and Eve from the garden for their good, 
which is another sermon for another day, or maybe just come tonight and we can talk about it. But before he expels them from the garden for their good, we read, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God covers them. He covers their nakedness. And this isn't just physical nakedness. He slaughters two animals and now comes because their pathetic leaves and trees were never going to do the job justice. He slaughters two animals to cover them with all the pain that they've brought into the world that now carries on generation after generation. Can you imagine being one of Adam's kids? Why is life so hard, Dad? Yeah, it was me. Um, Generation after generation. And their pain is brought into the light. It's named, it's honestly acknowledged as brokenness, and then it's covered. You see, we can't just accept ourselves if we want to rid ourselves from shame. We can't just define shame away. Instead, we need to let God cover us. If you want to be more, let God cover you with more. You see, we were never meant to be enough in isolation. And this was part of this, the, the serpent's plan at the very beginning, to get I, Eve to, to, to feel all alone and to begin to feel inadequate. Because listen, enough was a category exists of existence exclusively, exclusively available within communion with God and others. That's the only way you'll ever feel enough is communion with God and others. Not just you and God at the you know, expense of everyone else and not just everyone else at the expense of God, but communion. The only way we'll ever actually feel enough is communion with others and with God, the way we've been designed at the very beginning so you don't have to stop trying to be, you can now, now you can stop to, trying to be God. Stop chasing after more, trying to be more than what you've actually been designed to be, which is a human being made to have relationships with other human beings and to have communion with our creator God. This is what we're made for. And God covers and makes a covering available so that we can once again be vulnerable and unashamed. And only now, my goodness, do we have the framework for how great of a covering God wanted to cover us with. Theologians have noticed this thread that goes throughout Scripture. We're right here at the very beginning God slaughters two animals to cover two individuals. Then when you get to Egypt in the Exodus, you read that when the death angel comes through, a whole family only has to slaughter one lamb and put its blood on the doorposts to be forgiven, to be freed, to not be condemned. When you get to Leviticus and the broader national life of Israel, there now was instituted the Day of Atonement where one lamb could be slaughtered for the sins of a nation. And then when you come to Jesus, John the baptizer says something unbelievable. In John chapter 1, verse 29, when he sees Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's all been ratcheting up to see the great lengths through which God would go to cover us in the midst of our brokenness and our shame and our sin. Jesus has always been the ultimate covering that God had in store for us. Adam talked about this, or Paul talks about this in this way. He says that Jesus 
was the second Adam. The first Adam lost it all for us. But Jesus is the second Adam who wins it all back. And he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us. He became our murder. He became our adultery. He became our greed. He became our pride. He became all the sin that we harbor and that we perpetrate. And then he who had nothing to be ashamed of the whole world over was stripped naked, was mocked, was betrayed, was crucified for you and I in order that he might cover us with redemption, with love, with forgiveness, with his righteousness. Such that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. What great lengths God has gone to woo us out of the bushes of our sin and our shame. To cover us. If you want to be more, it won't be in your own attempts. That will only make you less. If you want to be more, you have to let God cover you with more. Because he's still walking, crying out to you and I, where are you? Where are you? Let me cover you. Let me run your life. Will you let him make you more this morning? Let's pray. God, I often feel like my inadequacies and the evil one are constantly whispering in those moments of isolation or sometimes push me to moments of isolation. May I rest in the finished work of Jesus. May I hear that you loved me so much that you sent your son to die for me, to cover me, to free me from sin and shame. May I trust your divine guidance in my life over against my own self-determination because you're trustworthy and knowing that that is the way to freedom. God, if there are those here who have a deep skepticism to who God is, may the beauty of the gospel speak a better word to their heart to who you are. If there are those here today who have yet to surrender to Jesus. And if that's true for you today, I pray that you would open your heart to the one who gave everything that you might know what it means to be fully human. And it starts with a simple surrender, saying, God, run my life. Thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus and his sufficient work. I am yours. You are mine. May that be a fresh and true for each and every one of us today. Holy Spirit, speak truth to us as is your role. Point us to Jesus and may we rest in you unashamed. Now more able to be vulnerable with one another and you. We love you, God, and we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, and by the power of his spirit who intercedes for us. Amen.